Welcome to the Locals Only Lounge. I'm your host, Andrew Dyer. Uh, we have a special lounge tonight. Um, as you had heard from the previous show, uh, we are a couple minutes behind, um, but uh, we're glad if you stuck around. And if you didn't, that you are listening to this maybe tomorrow on your uh, preferred podcast app. Um, but since we are a little behind, let's not waste any more time. Uh, producer John Cross is with us. John, good to see you again. Yes, right back at it. So <laughs> excited for our guest tonight. And our guest, uh, journalist and researcher, James Stout. James. Hi, thanks for having Thank me. Thank you so much for for coming on with us. Yeah, no, I'm excited to uh, have a chat. So, I guess um, for people who maybe aren't familiar with with your work and and what you do, um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, who you are and what you do. Yep, certainly. Uh, so, I'm a journalist now. Uh, I work for iHeart Media, uh, which people might be familiar with, but I, I do a news podcast for them. Um, in a previous life, I was an academic, and I wrote about sport and anti-fascism in 1930s Catalonia specifically. But obviously, uh, in the course of my PhD, studied kind of sport and specifically like popular fan culture and, and physical culture uh, in a in a broader basis. Uh, it's a modern European history degree, so mostly looking at Europe, uh, not not so much at the United States. But uh, yeah, that, that's my academic background. I'm still very interested in like. I'm very interested in how we can use sport to build more inclusive communities. I think that's what—that's one of the great values of sport. So as we don't talk about, and I think it's very interesting, like looking at the the context I come from. Like my family have been Carlisle supporters since I don't know, like like you know before before written history. I don't, um, but the club's only like a hundred and something years old, so not that long, but uh, a long time. And and sort of that club's obviously very rooted in the community. That's not so much like the case with, with football in America, but I think it's really interesting the way it's, it's postured itself in, in a very progressive fashion. So what what is your relationship with, with football? You mentioned your family is Carlisle supporters. Um, what is your history with, with the game and, and you grew up with it? And how, how is that? Yeah, so my mum's side is not, they're from Liverpool. So they're Liverpool. Uh, through and through, right? Like I've been to Anfield with my gran and my granddad, and then going to Brenton Park, which is the Carlisle Stadium, slightly less uh, famous than Anfield, I suppose. But uh, going with my dad since I was really little, you know, like like standing football, yeah, you know, like like it's this is we're not talking about Premier League football here. It's like have a pie and, and some bovril and uh, you know standing and lots of my best early memories with my dad are going to football. Um, doing stuff outside as well but like ever since I can I sort of maybe I don't know old enough to stand up for 90 minutes I suppose we, we'd go whenever we my fam, my side of the family had moved away from Carlisle but then when we were back if there was a home game we'd go my dad's a season ticket holder now so I've been you know when I go back I'll still go uh, but it's it's something that like I don't know it's it's a nice way of feeling like you're at home I think for me now uh, but it, yeah, it's always been, you know, every time they go to Wembley, we'd go and that kind of thing. Like even when we were down south or whenever we went up north or if they played near us, we'd go up and watch them there. So what's your, um, well, I'm not sure how long you've been in the States, but what's your relationship with football in the States been like? I I sort of tried when I first came here, like in a sort of uh, effort. I came here in 2008. 
so like uh just just at the end of the bush presidency um we got august of 2008 uh, i when i first came here i kind of looked it up and like it didn't very much feel the same for me like, like honestly like i think i wasn't watching football to like to watch people kick a ball around uh, I, I was watching football because it was something that i enjoyed doing with my dad and i liked the singing and uh, being part of a thing that's bigger than yourself and being part of your community um i spent some time in between 2008 and now living in barcelona doing my phd research uh so i would go to barcelona games that was always something i really enjoyed i lived one of the guys i live with uh, he wrote the match summary on the Barcelona website, if I remember correctly, which meant that he could get us cheap tickets. Uh, <laughs> so, like that, that was great. We go and watch that. I, I think we lost. Did I lose him, or did we both lose him, John? Yeah, James, we have lost your audio. If you want to uh, type in the chat, let him know. So go ahead, Andrew. I'll, I'll let you talk for a second. I'm going to okay. type to James here. Okay. So while we get that resolved, um, uh, well... We can uh, talk a little bit about the the survey again. If you want to hear more of my opinions about where the supporter group should go, I'm happy to uh, ramble on about that. <laughs> uh, you can go ahead. We're, we're going to try to work out uh, James's audio situation here while you're okay. going. Okay. Well, this is the joy of live uh, live streaming, <laughs> where we get to uh, deal with issues as they as they come. Uh, so, yeah, with the uh, with the survey results, John, um, you mentioned that uh, you were a little bit surprised by a few things in there. Um, otherwise, was it pretty much what you expected to see? I I would say the survey results were were pretty much what I expected I, overall, but still I was surprised with um, how many people were I guess open to exploring ideas and um, wanting to keep the group together. Right, that the the group has become like their family. It's kind of like what James was saying just before I left. That community aspect, we we really have developed that within our supporter group and. And people don't want to lose that now that the team is gone. So trying to figure out yeah. where we might be going next. Yeah. So you want to try to bring? Him back I was going to say we 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 do have James. We're going to try to bring him back on okay. here and see if we got audio going this time. Oh, I was so about to get. I was about to works. really get on a roll with my. Uh... Yeah, hopefully this works this time. Sorry. Oh, you're, you sound good. Yeah, um, we're sorry. glad to have you back. Yeah, this is my literal job. Okay. <laughs> Uh, it always yeah, happens yeah. right whenever you uh you really don't need it to yeah exactly uh but no hopefully hopefully you call much of that i did go to the marshall islands this year which is the only country on earth that doesn't have a football team oh wow hmm. they just started one actually i just uh, i bought one of the shirts the other day I... 
what were you what were you doing in the Marshall Islands? Uh, it's a place that we, uh, when I say we, I mean America, ha- has nuked, unfortunately, quite a lot. Um, and unfortunately, it's also one of the places which is uh, at very high risk of disappearing due to climate change. Uh, so I made a documentary podcast for iHeart. Really beautiful place. Uh, I would suggest people go if, if you know, they want to uh, see that before things get much worse with climate change. Uh, you can play football there, play lots of football with children. Uh, I think I play most of my football when I'm on work. I was just in Syria for work, and uh, there's like there is not a place on earth where little children haven't got like two jumpers and something to kick around, and they want to play football. So uh, I've been owned by various eight-year-olds all around the world playing football. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, I want to ask uh, kind of the the reason we wanted to to bring you on was that um, so the locals as a, as a supporter group uh, began, I think in 2019 was the official start time. Yes. Um, a lot of the original members kind of came from American outlaws, which is like the U S national team supporters. Yeah. Um, but there was a, an effort, I think from the beginning where um people wanted this supporter group to kind of have a little bit more of uh, a European flavor. And then we took on, of course, a uh, Latin American flavor as well. Yeah. Um, as things went on where, you know, the supporter group does uh, sing through the whole match. There's no break. It never stops. It's, you know, whistle to whistle, uh, no matter what the score is, uh, it never stops. And that's not something that uh, I've noticed uh, in other, well, at least not in the second division in the USL. Um, maybe in MLS is it's like that in some places. But, um, and one thing that we've kind of encountered was, you know, last year the club signed this guy Andrew Carlton, who had been at January sixth, yeah. and it caused a lot of uh, strife among uh, people in the supporter group. Um, there's been, uh, you know, in the stadium, they we have a Black Lives Matter banner. Um, that was controversial for uh, a member. Um, I, and, and, I, and one of the things that I, I kind of thought was like, I don't know if everybody understands, like, you know, what a like, how, like, this is all normal, like supporter group stuff in, in my mind, right? But I don't know if, if everybody kind of, uh, is aware of, especially in, in the States of where this part of supporter culture comes from. So, uh, I'm going to ask you where, how, and why did soccer fans get so political? Yeah. Um, it's a good question. Uh, if I can be just really pretentious and like reference uh, a sociology book, uh, there's a book by Elias and Dunning, which I think is really worth reading, uh, where they talk about like, um, there's this idea that like the, the the stadium is a place for controlled working class exuberance. It's it's where you can go and be expressing yourself, right? You can sing. Uh, every time I've taken an American to, to a game at Carlisle, like, they've heard words which you certainly wouldn't hear said in public, let alone sung by like 10,000 people. Uh, but you know that that's part of what we do uh but a lot of it is it's a place where the exuberance was allowed was tolerated right like you you're uh these days i would say this is not true you're uh, but if we look at like the early 20th century left that to get cracked on the skull by a cop uh 
for saying something in a football stadium than you might be somewhere else. Um, if we look like even earlier than that, right, like in the division between players and spectators, and um, so when football, like that's how it gets named soccer, right? It's association football. Uh, and that comes from the codification of the rules. And when the rules were codified, uh, they were done in such a way that it was designed to exclude uh, what was called professional players, right? Uh, there was a distinction between like gentlemen and players and, and like the idea being that gentlemen wouldn't take a wage. Uh, what that was, that was designed to exclude working class people from the sport, right? Like that, that's why it was happened. It's very clear. It's, it's very, uh, in, in the Football Association's foundation, it's very explicit that that's why it was done. Um, there was a Netflix program that people might have watched a couple of years ago, which might have given them a window into this a little bit, uh, like these factory teams. It's where a lot of teams come from, right? In, in especially in the north of England, right? Factories, mines, uh, like these uh, dockyards, these kind of things. And the idea was to exclude working people because it, it wasn't, a, they, they didn't want sport to be a social mixing ground, right? And so a lot of working people were excluded and, and sort of relegated to the terraces. And it was there that people were able to express their identity. And it was a place where it was safe for them to express their identity, both politically and culturally. And that's continued throughout certainly European football, also Latin American football, right? Like it's it's a place where if we look at FC Barcelona, for instance, the fans own the club, right? The the socios, the I can tell what the socios, like the the inscribers to the club, I don't know, the members. Um it's a place where like the community can represent itself and not be betrayed in a way other than the way it wants to betray itself. Right. And these clubs have taken on like political stances across the spectrum to be clear, like not all, not all football is anti-fascist. Uh, in fact, some of it's explicitly fascist. Right. But um, another great book that people might want to read if they're interested in like the more modern political fan culture is 1312 by James Montague. And if you read that, no, I haven't. Okay, it's good. It comes from, uh, of course, thing twelve, like all cops are bastards, which is kind of the great unifying principle of all football ultras across left and right, right? Like no one likes police, uh, and so that like that it's the one thing you'll see written in in the toilet of every football stadium, uh, like regardless of which way the fans are leaning. And uh, he writes about, like for instance, um, I'm sure you're familiar with the role that football fans played in Tahrir Square in Egypt in an Arab Spring. Uh, of course, the role that football fans played in the Euromaidan uh, in Ukraine, and the, the role that like organized groups of football ultras still play on the front lines in Ukraine, right? So, like these very political groups, but also these like networks between fans, which uh, was always something really interesting to me growing up. Like, uh, I my like sporting backgrounds were in cycling. I was, I was a bike racer. That was my job for a while. My first coach when I started cycling was a Chef United uh, hooligan. Like by by his own admission, uh, like he, you know he had like Chef United SUFC like you know but like uh, a sort of rustic tattoo that he'd done himself and the blades and all that and uh, anywhere you go in Europe to race bikes he's got friends because it's different football clubs and they're, they're networked together and we could stay with them and so like football went from being like a thing that people did and I guess to go back even further. Before that, right, you had football, like folk football, played between two villages. Uh, and, like, the, you had a ball, and you'd play it on a holiday, like a day when everyone was off work, and then you kick the ball into the other village, and that was how you scored. And um, one of the reasons that it went from, uh, like, a game to a sport, or from play to sport, um, is when we had rules and we had pitches, 
and the reason we started adding rules is because people kept killing each other right they, they, they were there was a lot of stabbing and such happening so um, they, they had to bring it within within like a delineated space which is when we get a pitch when we get a pitch someone controls the pitch and then when they control the pitch they control the rules and very quickly they use that to exclude people of a certain class right who they think it's undesirable to play with and so those people move to terrace to come back to original question the terrace is where they can represent their community right it's football didn't used to be super expensive it is now like the premier league is, is extremely expensive now even down in the like the uh league one where carlisle play uh it's expensive but uh it, it's an expensive that at least in league one people could bear you know my dad had a season ticket um and so it was a place where working class people could gather it was also like a public space in in a way that um like a third space it's neither home nor work so it was a place where people could express themselves in a way that they weren't that right there's a pub is the other big one in english society of course right but oh, british society um but those were really two public spaces in a play in a rapidly urbanizing society in the early 20th late 19th century that didn't have a lot of public spaces for working class people right they're not welcome when Habermas writes about the public sphere, he talks about the coffee house. Fucking coal miners aren't going to the coffee house, right? That's not that's not for them. Uh, so you've got the pub and you've got football. And so it becomes a place where people can express all aspects of their identity, not just, you know, we're winning, we're losing, you know, we scored a goal, whatever. So whenever, um, and I, I, I don't know how familiar you are with uh, football in the US, <laughs> but you know, when we talk about clubs like Liverpool mm-hmm. and, and these clubs that come out of the docks and, and the mines and factories, um, and you kind of have this this long generational, multi-generational tradition um, from those working class roots, from the pitch to the stands. And then in, in in the states we have this very very American kind of superficial yeah. version of that where we try to take all of these generational traditions and create them out of thin hair, right? Have you? Yeah. What is what is your take on uh, on the American pyramid such that it exists and um, and MLS in our first division. Yeah, sometimes I like to say the only place I feel that my culture is being appropriated as an English person is when I when I watch Americans watching football. Uh, like, <laughs> in a sense, it is. I think it's funny how American fan culture seeks to replicate European fan culture when we have such a rich and vibrant fan culture just to the south of us, right, all across Latin America. Some of the most insane fan cultures in the world can be found uh, across, like, um, South and Central America. Like, incredibly dedicated and incredibly entrenched fan cultures. And I, I see that coming more now, I think, but there's, there's, there's like, a conscious effort to replicate specifically, I think, uh, British, like, um, Again, like this is a bit of a trope and it's not always true, but like people will watch the like, Green Street Hooligans and try and make it their personality, even though it's not a very good film. Um, but uh, like it, it's it, it is a conscious effort to replicate that. And I think it's very hard to replicate that specific thing because the clubs like like as you've just experienced, right, they have something of an ephemeral existence like um, 
like it would not be possible for for Liverpool Football Club to cease existing. Like the city would burn. Uh, the people would like there, there would be blood in the streets. Like it just wouldn't it wouldn't happen. And it's not to say that fans here are any less dedicated because I know it's been very difficult for a lot of people to lose something that they'd invested a lot of time and energy and love and passion into. But uh, yeah, the the extent to which clubs are entrenched in families and communities. Like my grand, uh, uh, my great grandmother. Like I can remember, like the songs, you know, like uh, like them singing those songs, and uh, like there are songs that you think of football matches that, like, you've heard from like you know the older members of your family before you were too, uh, before you were old enough to go to the football matches, even like and, and like those are things that are very entrenched in in like in in my family as well as in in that fan culture right because that's just being from that place that's part of that even if you don't care about football uh those things are still entrenched in you like uh i think about like hips right they they do they sing sunshine on leaf like, people have that at their wedding as their first song right? people have that to, to song people have at a funeral uh you know i think it, of course if you're a big fan that's important but even if you're not it's part of being from there and it's not that's not the same here um, and it's not really the same with, from what I've seen, the other big sports either, right? The people are very keen on the charges. Um, it was very bizarre to me that, that a team could leave. I understood that, like, uh, sort of intellectually, but to, to, to experience that was very strange. Uh, and it's not to say that the fans aren't any more dedicated. It's just a di- different, the way the sport relates to the community is different, I think. I think that's kind of one of the, the things that, um, maybe misconceptions, at least in the early stages of San Diego loyal and, and the locals where um, people kind of think it's a fan club, <laughs> like, you know, they're like Padres fans or Chargers fans. And part of the uh, growth of the supporter group was kind of educating people like what it means to be a supporter. And it's like, well, we're going to be, we're going to spend time painting this giant tifo and we're going to be yeah. on our feet the whole match and it's it's a totally different it, it, it's unique i think in, in football compared to all the other other sports and i don't know um from my kind of opinion is because american football is so corporate right yeah and, you know i think we talk a lot about like Liverpool as, as a club and as a fan base. And it's, it's almost like an overtly political club, right? Like there's, there's a lot of uh, politics with the club associated with them and and with the fans. But here you have these clubs who make it kind of a point to avoid controversy, right? That's not what we want to do. Does it then kind of become more on the shoulders of of the supporters to, to make sure that their values and community is, is reflected in these clubs that have the, the city's name attached to them. Yeah. Like, are you familiar with FC St. Pauli in Germany? Yeah. So that, that fan culture comes out of squatter culture, right. And the Reaper barn and like this, the people who were coming to the clubs are explicit to the games are explicitly anti-fascist because it was in the area that was squatted by people who are anti-fascist, right. And they're part of this, Autonomous. If people aren't familiar, FC St. Pauli is maybe the most explicitly anti-fascist football club, apart from like uh, wearing the Clapham Community Football Club shirt. Um, 
which is modeled on the flag of the Spanish Second Republic, which is the thing I wrote my dissertation about. Uh, and they have like three arrows and it says no Pasaban on the back. Uh, so they, they might be challenging. And then it's got the International Brigades, uh, a three-pointed star as well, for the most anti-fascist football club. Bit of a smaller club, though. Um, but oh, that's good. I didn't even notice that you had the had that on there. Yeah, yeah, it's the same as the. I've got this Spanish Second Republic flag over here. It's the same colors. This they're a waste strip, but they've worn it. They've had it for years. It's great. Uh, they've sold an insane number of shirts for a football club. But you know, like everybody just stands around the pitch. It's, it's, it's uh, but they're, they're great. They're, they're worth a follow on Twitter. Um, so, so Pauli are very explicitly anti-fascist football club right their slogan no fascists in football or uh, fans and rex fans against the right um and that is a culture that came from the ground up it didn't come from the top down right and like the attempt to commercialize certainly like anti-fascist cultures uh we saw it all over in 2020 where it's extremely cringe and extremely vapid and uh, it didn't work and it, it didn't mean the same thing that it means um and like the what happened in Sao Paulo, I think, is an example that people can look at. Like, they weren't by any means like a, they're still not a great football team, uh, but like you've heard of them, that you know they're there because they they stand for something, and I think that that's made them popular. Like I bet a lot of people, it's not possible to go to a dive bar or a punk show in most places in the world and not see a fans Gegenrex sticker, like somewhere, right? Like I've seen them. Um, I saw I saw a fans Gegenrex sticker in the toilet of a bar in Kigali, which is the capital of Rwanda. Uh, like, like it's, it's everywhere. That, that culture supersedes uh, any knowledge of the club, and it's great. Um, and, and they do, as a club, really, like it's not a superficial, it's not a brand. Like they will, for instance, organize five-a-side games for refugees. That uh, They've hired LGBTQIA players so that they can you know, be playing for a club that supports them and, and affirms their identity. Uh, but yeah, that, that came from the ultras. It came from the fans being like, this is who we are. And uh, uh, like making their stadium, I guess, not a safe place for fascists uh, meant, meant that their stadium was a safe place for people who wouldn't have felt safe around fascists, right? And that's true of a lot of fan cultures, I think. Um, like, I don't think uh, certain football clubs, in certain cases they did, but I don't think certain cases, like in uh, Barcelona has always asserted a, a more progressive identity compared to Madrid, right? Uh, and that really came up under under Franco, but like even um, Jimmy Burns has written some excellent books about Spanish football history. If people are interested, he's a lovely guy. Yeah, um, this is interesting because you brought up Madrid, and and yeah. like my brother, uh, this is off the, the point, but he, I was making a bunch of jokes uh, during the summer that Christian Pulisic should sign with Barcelona. And my brother is like, oh, I'm a I'm a Real fan, and I'm like, oh, you're a fascist or what? Like, how much yeah. how much do, does these kind of political affiliations, like, how much in 2023 does that, like, does it reflect the fan base? Does the fan base reflect that? Um, for a, like a global brand like Real Madrid, like, I associate it with Franco because you know I like to be a pain in the ass to people, but um is it still that way i think it, i mean it's certainly not everyone right but uh and I, I come from a perspective which is entrenched in like living in catalonia and, and, and talking about this chiefly in catalan with catalan people but uh our perspective was that they were a fascist team and that 
that Barcelona was there for any, like even I don't know if, I found a thread on Twitter the other day but it was like uh, Barcelona players taking anti-fascist action it's all just them like nutmegging Madrid players uh, from the women's team uh, but it you know like it's certainly a very popular identity and they'll do you'll see them giving it like their salute in the stadium right like that, that still happens and certainly outside the stadium too right um, obviously it's not to say that everyone who supports a team is a fascist or certainly everyone who gets hired by the team. Um, but like, even as recently as the, um, you know, the, the, the last decades of the, the previous century before Franco died, um, Cruyff, Johan Cruyff, right, was the, um, with the Barcelona manager and he called his son Jordi, which is a Catalan name. Uh, Catalan names were allowed under Franco, right? So like consciously or unconsciously, uh, he he chose to do a thing which was banned, um, and, and so in doing so raised a massive middle finger at Madrid. Right, it's just, this is a Dutch guy who's not like he, he's certainly not Catalan, but he's been embraced by the Catalans, and something about that club has imbued in him that identity to want to whether or not he knew. I mean, it, it would be it's an interesting choice if you don't know, but um, yeah, it, it that for instance, he's a hero in Barcelona. <laughs> like, like it, I don't think he could buy himself a drink. Um, so like I think that still is reflected in fan culture certainly some of the other identities right the the faith-based ones that you'll see in, in, when there are two clubs in a city in, in much of uh, certainly in, in Britain we'll see like a Catholic and a Protestant club but those are still very real um, like you don't have to look much further than what's happening right now in Palestine and like you can see how different clubs fan bases have reacted um, and even to their like even when they're being uh, like ejected from the stadium for doing so, right? That they don't get to watch the football match, uh, but they're doing so because that political identity is clearly important to them. In some cases, they know they're going to get booted out, and they're still doing it, right? That's a, that's a conscious choice. So I think it is still it is still very real. If you look at the, um, I was uh, spent a lot of time talking last year. I was supposed to go to Ukraine, but I didn't. But um, if you look at how some of the explicitly anarchist and anti-fascist units in Ukraine are supplied, it's through football fans from the rest of Europe, right? Like I was speaking to some Polish people, they out, they acquire cars from anti-fascist clubs in Italy. Someone drives them up through, uh, you know, through Europe, come up to Poland, Poland anti-fascist fans, people from an anti-fascist group will outfit those vehicles take them into ukraine where as we know right there there are anti-fascist football uh football fan groups ultras fighting on the front line as as units in the war so like that's a very real identity it's one that people are killing and dying for and it doesn't mean there aren't also fascist football fans fighting on the front lines because there are in, in in groups but it's still a very real identity like it, it doesn't get much more real than that you know have you seen and and you know, I don't know your exposure to, you know, supporter culture in the U.S., but is there anything close to that here with some of our supporter groups? Have you seen, you know, fan bases that you affiliate with with any of these movements, or is or things here as as sterile as maybe maybe they seem? I don't think they're as sterile, but I think my perception is that they become more so as the game becomes more corporate, right? So, like, I think, uh, like, you had a BLM banner in the stadium, but also the, the club reflected that progressive identity. So the actions they took, like, when they were getting, uh, like, homophobic slander, right? They they clearly had taken, at least the players had taken that on board. 
um, the bigger it gets, right? Like with the, for instance, the new San Diego FC, like I, I'm reminded of that. Um, there's a concept in sports history called placelessness, which is widely like panned as ridiculous. Um, it's written by a guy called Bale. He's a sports geographer. Seems like he watched one like uh, one like Olympic track and field thing, and then and then just wrote a book about it, like saying that what matters is the record performance, and that's why all the stadiums are the same in, in athletics. And what matters is running the hundred meters the fastest, not where and not who. Uh, that's widely accepted to have never applied to football, right? Like it, it, it just doesn't like it. Like playing a game, that's why we have home and away games. You know, it, it is why we have stands. It's why we sometimes don't let people go in the stands. Um, but that concept of placelessness seems to apply when sport becomes a vehicle for investment. And like you see, like, yeah, we'll put an MLS team here because we can get sponsors and bring revenue and blah, blah, blah. Like it, it, it that makes it harder for, for people like yourselves, right? The genuine fans who want to assert like a, a, uh, like wherever it's ultras or like a fan club or whatever you want to call it um pena they um it makes it harder right because there's not that sense of permanence and it's not like intergenerational in the same way um you see it a little bit with like um east coast uh in, in sports right like uh um, with like boston and new york and places like that right like that was always the place that sort of you'd look for it but um it's maybe it may maybe that's similar but then it's it's just a team identity right there's not like a there's not like a like an ultras group within that you know they're not doing tifos they're not doing pyros they're not asserting as much of a political identity um if you compare that to like barcelona in 2018 when catalonia had the independence referendum like barcelona was out there making statements being like no we're in favor of this come to the stadium to vote right and the, the spanish government had declared the vote illegal so they had sent in police it's the equivalent of uh the like california vote to secede and and uh joe biden sending in the u.s marshals to try and stop us right and uh and you know the uh, San Diego Loyal or San Diego FC were being like, yeah, come to the stadium and have your independence vote and we won't let the cops in. Like, uh, you, you perhaps wouldn't see that from an American club in, in the same way. It doesn't mean it can't happen. It doesn't mean that, like, it's not possible for fans to make clubs, like, welcoming and, and uh, like, progressive places. But it, it just, it takes some more doing when the club isn't as rooted, I think. So this interview kind of came about because uh, I think you and I were both kind of having some fun with this uh, SDFC logo on Twitter. And I thought it was uh, a great opportunity for me to finally invite you onto the pod so we could have this conversation. I want to know what your take is on like, so our supporter group support the loyal um, it's rooted in some of these kind of progressive values and this, the, the, the team stood for something that really galvanized. Um, a, I mean, e- e- even though the club was very young, you don't have that generational thing because they took that stand in 2020. It really, it really had an effect on, on fans and it really kind of gave people that, that feeling, you know, that, that attachment, and you know, we've built this community around the supporter group. Yeah. 
we no longer have a club. So, you know, there's a very good chance that in order to keep our community together, we have to go and support the club that essentially killed ours. Um, is there, I, I don't know, what, what are your thoughts on that? You know, this, this, this logo that they came out with on their shield. Um, what does that say to you and, and, and how, you know, what, what do you think about uh, the, the supporter group? What, what should, what should we do? I like, Look, the logo was cringe and the explanation of it was worse, right? Like, I refuse to believe that a human wrote that. Um, they're, they're, like, both powerful, both strong <laughs> thing, or, like, both it's, it's the flow. It's the flow. Come yeah, on. the Azul, and, like, yeah, it, it was very chat GPT, um, and it was bad. Like, and it, it, it just it just stank of, like, corporate, uh, like, you know, it kind of make something that's acceptable to everyone. Uh, but that doesn't mean that, like, yeah, like, I mean, like, my dad goes to the football every Saturday. And, like, it would be bad if, if obviously, you not know, every Saturday in the summertime, but, um, you know, when it's on. And his friends all sit next to each other. And, like, I would be sad if that got taken away from him. And so would he. Um, and, like, I would rather that he go, or, like, this, and it's the same for, for you guys, I assume, right? You have a community that you've built, a set of values. You have met people who share those values, who you know will show up who you know will show up for the same causes that you will uh, and, and that you share something that you enjoy. So like in that sense, maybe there's an opening to make this club something that reflects that. Uh, like if people turn up and they reflect that and like, I think some of it does come down to being like, there is no space for racism in our stadium. There's no space for homophobia in our stadium. Uh, and the way you assert that is, is very different in America to the way we might do that in Europe because yeah, you'll have guns. Um, so it makes it harder to just uh, uh, and you know, but the the way that that happened, the way those clubs came in Europe, isn't necessarily from like someone making a corporate DEI decision. It's from someone it, it can be crude, like punching someone who said something racist, right? Um, even like uh, I was talking to, I've got a friend who I talk to a lot about football, um, and we were talking about Eric Cantona the other day. And like how you know, like Eric Eric Cantona kicked a guy for for being a bigot, right? And, and like uh, Manchester United was always one of those clubs that didn't feel like it had, at least at that time, as much. Like it was obviously very rooted, but lots of the people I knew from Manchester sported City, right? And it, it became a global mega club that people and like I the problem with Manchester United wasn't that Eric Cantona kicked the guy, so no one else kicked him first, or uh, that like ten other people who were on his team didn't also kick the guy, right? Like uh, and then it then it became a spectacle. But like, there's a chance I think if you know you have a stadium and you have people who show up in it to be like, this is our stadium and this is how we how we run things. And like, we get up and sing and like uh, we do our tifos. And I know you can't like send it as hard with the pyros as, as you can in uh, some stadiums. But like, uh, you know, to be like, this is a this is our place and this is how we run it. And the ultimately like. If there's one thing we've seen in in Europe, right, it's the people who own a club only have so much say in what happens on the stands of that club, right? There, there are especially with the, the sort of global era of the like the the, the mega club and, and the billionaire owner and such, right? Like, I, I don't think those people, you know, get to decide what people are singing, chanting, doing in, in the stadium. And so, like, I think that's the same here. Like, it's uh, especially with a new club where people might not be so inclined to show up. Like, there's a chance for people who do to a certain identity. 
and then if, if the people who do own the club decide to push back on that identity, then that, that's a difficult situation. But uh, cross that bridge when you come to, I suppose. So what about you personally? Are you interested in, in coming out and watching this team? Did you ever come out and, and see Loyal? Um, does American football do anything for you at all? Yeah. I like I I didn't I kept intending to go and watch Loyal. Even made plans with my friends to do it like dozens of times, and they never did. Uh, that's just because I'm terrible at committing to stuff. Uh, it's so much easier once you like have that group of friends, and that's what you do on a Saturday. So yeah, I'd, I'd give it a crack again. Like it's just uh, like. The, especially with like the the the, uh, the 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 new stadium that we have, like um, it just feels so different to me. But it doesn't mean that like I shouldn't try it, right? Like like I loved going to Barcelona, and I felt welcome there. And like every time I went there, I felt like I was doing a thing and part of a thing that was important. Uh, and so like I maybe the thing will feel the same. Certainly, like if the club begins to assert an identity that I can get behind, uh, and if tickets aren't insanely expensive. That, that you know that would be something I would like to do. I know I stay in touch with some of the um, some of the fan groups from LA, and I, I think they've asserted a really cool identity and a cool like progressive fan base there. Um, I think they've they've been booted out the stadium as well actually for having Palestine flags uh, in, in recent weeks. But like um, that's something I've always wanted to do to go up there. And I'd always out. You want to go up there and get kicked okay, out? Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. I can think of <laughs> 10 different ways to get kicked out of the match in LA. <laughs> yeah. I just wear my San Diego stuff. <laughs> well, that's uh, that's that's really um, insightful, and we, and we really appreciate your, your perspective on it. And um, I hope that like our members, as they uh, are either watching the stream or, or listen to the podcast later on, that they can really. Uh, take something um, away from it. Certainly, I've learned a lot talking with you. I feel like I can just keep asking you um, these questions. But um, I guess uh, before we wrap up, um, what is your like right now? Like, what's your favorite team to watch? Who, who, what, what fan culture really like speaks to you like right now with what's going on in the world? I've really enjoyed the way, uh, like, of course, Glasgow Celtic have responded. I thought that was like, I don't know. It. Um, I was talking to a colleague. What my uh, I've I've worked with Palestinian journalists before. I've written about Palestine before. I wrote a piece about parkour in Palestine pretty recently, before all this. Um, and like, it's been really difficult. Like, I was in Syria when all this began, and uh, and and. Uh, that was just something kind of difficult um, and then come home and like uh, I sent the the video of them singing You'll Never Walk Alone to my friend who's still there and he was like oh this is really special for us and like um, that's the thing that only football could do like you're just not going to get like thousands of people singing a song anywhere else and I think regardless of me obviously people have very very I've been on the internet and I've seen that people have very divided opinions on this topic. Uh, but like, I think there's something we can all take from that. Like when your children, you know, you, you're in a place where children are dying uh, and, and then bombs are falling and shit. And you're like, Oh, well these people in Scotland are singing a song for us. And that's nice. Um, I think that's illustrative of like the power of fan culture in football. Um, and I think that's really special. And it's something that like I've, um, 
I've appreciated for a long time about football, but seeing it happen now, I'm, I'm constantly impressed by the ability of fans to um, to like transcend borders and boundaries uh, and uh, like reach out to people as people and then come. That's another thing about football, right? Like it really doesn't matter. There are boxes and shit that like, you have to be very pretentious and wealthy to go to them, right? But like. It doesn't matter. I remember watching Carlisle play at Wembley and watching Carlisle score and like I've got no idea who the person next to me was. And I was three rows down by the time I fucking gathered myself, you know, like and I was probably twelve years old. It just doesn't matter, right? You're gonna hug that person, they're gonna hug you, your car key's gonna fall out when you jump in the air, someone's gonna find them later. Like it it's just a very special sense of joy and belonging. So like I that's always been something that I look for that that like that's what I go to football for maybe people watch that, that show about Wrexham and they can uh they can have a grasp of it now but like that is you know, I Anna, I I I sincerely and this is not I mean it's a little bit of a bit but I actually truly believe that m- maybe that show could be uh, the domino that gets us pro rel in the U.S. Yeah. <laughs> like maybe in in a hundred years of of this, maybe we'll finally have something like that system where a, a community club can actually, you know, with of course financial investment, can actually yeah. uh, well, go those up the people, ladder. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to go yes, to get like uh, yeah, to get a get an actual uh, promotion sort of set up would be. Uh, it's just very, it's very, that blew my mind when I came here and watched American football and was like, what? Like, you don't get promoted already. What the fuck's the point? Like, um, but I, I think, like, I think you can understand that people supported that club for years when they were shit and they were, you know, they'd lost all the time. And like, there's something very special to me about like, you come from a town where the money has left everyone with money has left right and it rains all the time and it's gray and there's nothing to do and there are no jobs and like the the best part of your week is going to the football like that is something that football gives that not many other things do like that there are there are other things that like individual people have their hobbies and things but like that chance to be happy to be like ecstatically happy uh in a way that like you don't really get in the rest of your life like you don't really get that sheer elation and that you get watching a football game with your friends, your family, like uh, th- that's what it gives to people. It gives them an escape and, and a way out and something to hope for. And like, that's something that's really special about it. And I hope we have that here because like, God knows we need it. Like, like uh, our politics is terrible and uh, you know, it, it, the economy is difficult for people at the minute and then housing prices are insane. Uh, so like, it, you know, if we could go, if we could all go to football, have a nice time. And even if we win or lose, you know, like enjoy it together. It's something that brings communities together, I think. So like, that's the thing I take from fan culture. But yeah, I've been just in the last few weeks watching their response to what's happening in, in Gaza and, and in Israel. Like, I think initially, of course, with, with the initial terrible things that happened on 7th of October, lots of, I saw lots of fans you know, expressing condolences and, and, and to, to other fans in, in Israel too. And I think that's a really powerful thing that, that football can do. And like, you don't really get in other sports, at least to my knowledge. Like I uh, enjoy watching rugby. I've participated in professional cycling. Like it's not the same, uh, really. It's not like, even though the Tour de France is the most watched live event on earth, like 
uh, and if people will do political things, it's it's not the same as having those people confined in a stadium, you know, doing things like a TIFO. Like, you know, it's very hard to get a thousand people to turn little pieces of card over in any other aspect of life, right? Like, it, it's an incredible act of unity that, that you don't see anywhere else. So, like, yeah, I guess that's what I take from it. John, um, I know I've been kind of monopolizing uh, our conversation with, with James. Do you have any questions or, or anything that um, you'd like to add? Uh, I don't have any. And I was I know this was your guest and I was just letting you roll <laughs> with it tonight. Um, I, I've enjoyed the conversation tremendously. Um, a lot of the things, James, you said, my my dad is English and oh, know, okay. he, he grew up my apologies. Um, out, outside of Bradford and uh, was a Bradford City yeah. fan as well. And when we would go back and visit, but it, his big thing that he liked more was cricket. So, but uh, I, I that's a different fan culture. Right. But we'd go to the local club and just get fish and chips and sit out there mm -hmm. and, and watch because he, he just wanted to be again back in the community and part of that community. And I yeah. think that those are some of the stories I've been enjoying hearing you talk about because I feel like we we did we we got a taste and a sense of that in our four years of building a strong community. And that's where we're at a crossroads right now is we we don't want to lose what we built up and just trying to figure out where we go next. But Yeah, that's an unenviable position, I'm afraid. Yeah, yeah. you mentioned yeah. um the the Hibs Mike my my grand is from edinburgh and um that was i didn't even know that was her club until like a few years ago so i haven't quite gotten into the the scottish premier league quite just yet but i feel like some kind of like a genealogical obligation to at least know something <laughs> about the club <laughs> uh, you'll have uh, you'll be you have to bring you have to pick a song you could do sunshine on leaf but you know you have to teach people sunshine on leaf first but uh, <laughs> uh yeah you could you could uh, bring that to uh, san diego so before we get off and i know we're pushing an hour right now but um, you mentioned just getting back from Syria. Um, can you tell us anything about your your work over in Syria? What you're working on? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so I was there uh, um, meeting with some people from the Kurdish Freedom Movement. Um, so people might be familiar with the Yepige Yepige, uh, the uh, men's and women's forces, uh, people's protection forces, uh, respectively, who were the people who did the ground fighting against the territorial caliphate of the so-called Islamic State, right? Um, they, since that happened, uh, they've carved out a large autonomous niche in North and East Syria, which they run according to principles of democratic confederalism, which is a, a libertarian communist ideology. So uh, we can call it within the broader spectrum of anarchism, right? People don't elect representatives, they vote on things rather than picking people. Uh, people in San Diego can maybe identify why voting for people is a bad idea uh, if they're watching them there. Um, but what I what I'm writing about specifically is uh, like anarchists in in the broad spectrum. Um, how anarchists meet with war. So uh, I was in Myanmar. Uh, it's called Burma. Sometimes uh, last year, meet with people, um, and I've, I've stayed in touch with them and speak with them pretty often uh, about how they've been fighting for democracy there. Uh, about how Kurdish and allied people, um, most of the Syrian democratic forces, which includes the Yepige Yepige or Arab actually, but um, started out with Kurdish movements, um, how they organize and how they've been fighting. And then I met 
traveled across Kurdistan to um, Eastern Kurdistan to meet with some people who were part of the leadership of that Kurdish freedom movement. Um, and uh, I'll be writing a book for AK Press about that uh, and about the Spanish Civil War, kind of bringing in those three examples. Uh, I wanted to go to Ukraine and write about that as well, but I don't think that's going to happen in the, the next short while. So uh, probably be those three examples. And uh, yeah, I'm uh, working on that book. Maybe I'll do a podcast about it at iHeartMedia. But um, incidentally, if uh, another thing I've been working on, which might be interesting to people, is I do a lot of border reporting, go down to the border, um, and uh, I've been going a lot out to Hakumbo, where people might be aware that the Border Patrol are keeping people in open-air detention for several days in pretty, pretty rough conditions. But uh, the one thing that you can always talk to people about is football, right? Like... Uh, I was sitting there the other day and like, it was terrible. It was raining. There was no shelter. People were shivering. Uh, we didn't have any hot food to give them. It was very sad. And then this guy just shows up in a QPR shirt, which uh, was like not a reference I've been expecting from, uh, I think the guy was Egyptian. Um, and, and so like, we had a good old chat about like <laughs> the glory days of QPR. And uh, it's this nice little escape. It's just what football is, right? It's an escape from the, the shitty gray nature of existence very often. So yeah, people want to people in San Diego want to go down and help out. That there's uh, there's lots of help needed down there. So I, I think you've also done some work on a, a podcast I enjoyed. Certainly the the first season, the It Could Happen Here podcast. That's it. Yep. Um, yeah, yeah. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, of course. I'm terrible at plugging stuff. Um, yes. Uh, so It Could Happen Here is a podcast I work for on iHeartMedia. Uh, we try and look at collapse as an ongoing thing rather than as a thing that we can only see in hindsight. Right. Um, so we're talking about how. The world's falling apart and people are bringing it back together and um, so i covered the marshall islands and how they're responding to climate change and how they've they've, they've sent a community in that and i think they're very inspirational i think there's a lot that we can learn from them uh we covered uh the civil war in myanmar we went over there to meet young people who are 3d printing guns and um, very different context of 3d printing guns in the us but uh young people there who were you know, saw their friends. If you, if you imagine the, uh, that January 6th had stuck it out for three years and succeeded, and uh, that those of us who didn't want January 6th... Oh, wait till November next year, right? It's, it's yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, it, it could do. Um, but they had a military coup, right? They didn't want a military coup. Uh, I met some of these lads on Reddit, of all places, uh, where they were in a 3D printing subreddit. I like to 3D print stuff. And uh, I pretty quickly worked out that they were actually 3D printing guns in the jungle. So I went over to visit them and did a podcast about that. Um, so we've done that a was, few different That's ones. super cool. Yeah, yeah. They, I would encourage people to listen to that just because it, it doesn't get reported on as much as it should. Not because I want to blow up my own work, but they're really inspiring. And uh, just I'm very proud of them as people, of the way they've progressed, of the way they've uh, they've become very progressive people, not through thinking you know, not because they thought it was good to be progressive or beneficial to them, but because they've realized that like sexism hurts everyone, homophobia hurts everyone. And uh, they've modified their views and accepted people and uh, and really become incredible young people. They're very young and uh, the time I spent with them, I really enjoyed. And, and yeah, I, I'm, I really think that the world should be paying more attention to them. There's a lot of terrible wars going on, but there's another one for you. They're doing quite well at the minute. They've just taken a ton of territory in northern Myanmar. So it's a good well, story. Um, it's been 
you know, just fantastic having you on. Um, and you've given us so much to think about. Um, and we're going to get those uh, book recommendations and get yeah. it shared in the Discord if anybody um, is interested in reading about some of these histories uh, that James has touched upon throughout this episode. Um, where can people find you? Uh, I'm, I'm on uh, X, formerly known as Twitter, uh, at James Stout. I have a Patreon, uh, which is James Stout. I write about stuff there, varied stuff. Um, sometimes I write about sports history. Sometimes I write about uh, stuff we've been doing in Myanmar, uh, migration, all kinds of stuff. Um, I've written a book called The Popular Front of the 1936 Popular Olympics, which looks at uh, how the Catalan Popular Front used sport to build an international anti-fascist identity that went on to become the International Brigades. The 400 people who founded the International Brigade, who were the first international volunteers, were actually there to compete in the anti-fascist Olympics, which was the alternative to the 1936 Berlin Olympics. So that book tells some of their stories. Um, and they can find me on the It Could Happen Here podcast, which is five days a week. And you can get it wherever podcasts are given away for free. Awesome. Well, uh, I can't thank you enough for coming on. Um this has been uh, absolutely fantastic and I could probably keep you for another hour, but I won't. So yeah, no, it's nice. <laughs> I, I, I like to talk about football. It's good. All right. Well, thanks everybody for uh, checking out the stream. And if you're listening uh, on the podcasting app, uh, make sure you check out the other show that's being released where we talk about the uh, survey results and some of uh, what we're talking about for the future. So check those out until next week. <laughs>